Warriors, Tansei, Sego, Ani Buju, Quay Ninda Luizi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, but at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and practices. And it's also about us as Indigenous peoples living, asserting, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And today, we are so lucky to have with us a true warrior and one of my personal heroes, Cora Morgan. She's the First Nations family advocate uh, in the province of Manitoba. And while her official role has been to provide support and advocacy for First Nations uh, children in care and of their families too, she also acts as like uh, an informal mentor to all of us who need more information on how best to advocate for First Nations kids in care. She's our go-to expert. She helps with everything, whether it's symposiums or interviews or advocacy or media. She's literally just amazing. And, uh, you know, she's uh, advocated tirelessly for basic human rights, basic social justice for First Nations children that are involved in the child welfare system in many forums as well, like official forums, you know, throughout Manitoba, but also in parliamentary and Senate committees, as well as before the National Inquiry into Murder to Missing uh, Indigenous Women and Girls. So I'm truly honoured to have you here, Cora. Welcome to my show. I'm very honored. Thank you very much for including me in your important work. And uh, it's a real honor for me to be speaking with you today. Well, th- thank you. I'm just, I'm really excited. And I know all of my listeners are going to learn so much from you today. And But I'm wondering before we start off, if you would like to introduce yourself the way you like to do it, where you're from, your First Nation, however you like to introduce yourself. Well, my spirit name is White Wolf Moon Woman, and I'm from the Turtle Clan. I'm a mother. I'm a member of the Seging First Nation in Manitoba, and um, and I'm a helper of our people. Well, and that's uh, that's pretty obvious because I, for as long as I've known you, I've only ever seen you advocating for people and families talking about what what you've done and how you've reunited them. So I'm just wondering, for all of those people, say, who are outside of Manitoba, who isn't familiar with the First Nations Family Advocate Office, could you tell us a little bit about, like, what your office does what and what your role is? Okay, certainly. Um, well, for me, I, I my, my career has been all over the map. And um, prior to this, I was working in the area of restorative justice. And I, you know, we just just started seeing on a regular basis that many of the youth that were coming through our doors who were in conflict with the law uh, were children in care. And we started tracking those stats because every week we would get more and more files referred over to us from the Crown's office. And there were some commonalities that we wanted to look at. And then we just started seeing all these youth coming into our office and they had a commonality in that they were losing value for life. And we really struggled with that at our office and we wanted to be able to do something about it. And we had a tragedy, or we've had numbers of tragedies in Manitoba, the loss of life of children in care. And the Phoenix Sinclair inquiry came about because a five-year-old girl died in the child welfare system at the time, the chiefs in Manitoba 
um, didn't feel that the province of Manitoba was adequately uh, involving the First Nations voice in the way that uh, change was going to happen. And so the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs at the time conducted engagement sessions in 2014, and they invited grassroots people to come forward and talk about all of the concerns that they had with the child welfare system. So they had one in Winnipeg and one in northern Manitoba and Thompson, and hundreds of First Nations people came forward, grandmas, parents, children who aged out, and voiced their concerns. And all of that information that was gathered in those forums precipitated the Bringing Our Children Home report. And 10 key recommendations came out of that report. And one of them was the need for a First Nations advocate. And so at the time, um, I remember the day, uh, me and the staff at Onishawayman uh, saw a, a newspaper article and it announced from the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs that they were going to open this office. And at the time, we were just excited because it seemed so hopeless that no one was doing anything about what was happening to all these children. And at the time, I um, was urged by some of my colleagues to, to apply for the role, and um, I was a successful candidate. And on June 1st, 2015, we officially opened the First Nation Family Advocate Office. And I should also sort of back up a bit there, too. Uh, at the time, the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs went to both governments asking for the resources to uh, address those 10 recommendations of the, of the report, and neither government came forward with anything to be able to support it. And then, um, <clears throat> and they had tried multiple times. And then um, the tragedy of Tina Fontaine happened. And when that happened, um, there was more urgency to, to, to do something. And there wasn't any resources to do anything. So at the time, the chiefs in Manitoba pooled source funds and they created a salary for one person. And so that was, is how we started on June 1st, 2015. My, myself and an assistant advocate, we shared a salary just to get started on the work that needed to be done. And... Um, we didn't have a frame of reference because it had never been done before. And the Grand Chief of the day, Derek Nipanak, he says, well, how are you going to start? And my answer at the time was in ceremony. So on my first day on the job, we had ceremony with elders. And Elder Wally Swain gifted us the name Abenujiak meaning our children are coming home. And that didn't mean that we are physically bringing children home to their parents and meant that no matter what our physical age was, when we go back to our original ways of doing things, our languages, our ceremonies, our teachings, and we're coming home. And when we, when we do that, we're going to have our children. Wow. That's, that's an incredible story. I didn't even know the background that it started in ceremony and uh, it started out with that name. That's, that's incredible. I mean, and to me, it just, it seems like the prime example of, you know, um, 
First Nations exercising their own sovereignty. So, you know, you try to hold governments to account. You try to tell them, you know, to, you know, to stop the injustice. They should be contributing funds. And then when they didn't, you're like, well, who's going to love our kids more than us? So you just go and you do it. And it doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to be giant, it, you know, like you didn't even have a huge organization. It was, you know, just the two of you starting out. So that's, I mean, that's, um, that's pretty significant when you look at, you know, the crisis that we were in. And and I also, I remember the bring uh, bringing our kids home report and those recommendations and just how, how little attention it got in comparison to the kind of media attention that it's getting now like i think your advocacy office has actually been effective in bringing attention not just amongst us you know mm -hmm. as first nations people but you know uh, to really put pressure on the government and you know like it, is there anything about you know the the child advocate office that you found was the most effective in really putting pressure on government well, I think um, working in restorative justice for all those years, mm -hmm. I remember one morning I was thinking about residential school. And when I originally started in that role and I started in restorative justice, I didn't have a background in restorative justice. But one of the things that I committed to years and years and years ago when I went to university was that I wanted to best understand residential school, although I had never experienced it. I wanted to personally know all that I could. And so one of the things um, I thought of that morning was that in the days of residential school, I wanted to believe that mainstream society wasn't aware of what was happening to the children. Mm -hmm. And sitting there that morning, I was thinking, we're in the midst of something like residential school right now. And I think that one of the things that we need to do is make sure that it can't be ignored and that everyone knows that it's happening and that there's detrimental things that are happening. And, you know, the minute we opened our doors on June 1st, 2015, um, I, was, I wasn't a social worker. I never worked in the child welfare system ever. I was a mother and I have teachings and, you know, attend ceremony and I have my own beliefs about what is right. The things that I saw for these young people is that they were missing love. And that is kind of the frame of reference that I brought to it and what I believed was right and wrong. And so um, we just opened our doors. Our doors were flooded. In the beginning, we were getting 1,200 calls a week from families <sighs> because there never had been a mechanism for them to come forward and fight the fight. And the more that I was doing the work and meeting with our families, they were teaching me and showing me how impossible it was to have their children back. And, and just over time, you see the design of the system and how it's just so calculated to uh, break the bond between mother and child and to make it near impossible to, to fight a, a, a fair fight. You know, it's not a fair system. Um, our, our families are at an extreme disadvantage. And, you know, I just think about 
you know, over 150 years of stolen children and the fact that, you know, in all of that time, it's never been a fair, a fair process. And there's never been a mechanism for our families to effectively fight the fight if, if they had the will to be able to do that. And I shouldn't say will, I should say, um, you know, just what's happened to our people over mm -hmm. the end, that they've never had the mechanisms to fight back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, also dealing with trauma. So I'm sure many of these parents were victims of the child welfare system themselves or residential schools or any one of the other hundreds of, you know, federal and provincial policies that really oppress and traumatize our people. It must be hard even just to reach out for help sometimes when you're also dealing with all of that. Well, and you just even think about the trauma that our families face in the moment. You mm -hmm. think about someone knocking on your door at any given moment and stealing your children, you know. There's a book called A Knock on the Door talking about, you know, the fear in the days of residential school that's never gone away. Our families uh, still fear that knock on the door. And and so when we first started, it was just every, every day I heard from mothers saying they're breaking the bond, they're breaking the bond. And, um, and then... Uh, um, I started June 1st, and at the beginning of September, I witnessed a newborn baby being apprehended. <sighs> and I just couldn't even, um, because I never worked in the child welfare system, I didn't, I had no idea that was even a thing. And then to find out how common it was in our province. Um, and just that day, it, it's burned into my brain always, that innocent little baby in a car seat and, you know mom and dad crying and you know it was just really horrifying to me and I I was kind of struggling and I, re I remember leaving there that day and I thought what what am I even going to do now and you know when in doubt um, and when you need direction we decided that we would fast and so we fasted at the Manitoba Legislative Building at the beginning of September for four days um, and it was not in protest of government. It was more about bringing our spirituality to that space and mm -hmm. our people to that space. And we had, you know, we didn't have a budget. We didn't have resources, but we had a teepee and a planned fast, and we didn't really need anything. And six women stepped forward, and we, we committed to that. And we had no expectation of how that would unfold but you know thousands of our people came there and um so many special people we met just in that one fast that played key roles at helping our little tiny office keep moving and and it it inspired some of our families to just fight back themselves you know now we had this little office and you could only see as many people as you could see and people would call them out and and, and you know my hands were already full and I'd be like all you have to do is take everything in you and speak if you're going to court make sure that judge knows how much you love your kids 
Mm-hmm. Um, make sure everybody knows, make sure everyone's mm-hmm. aware of what you've done and what you're prepared to do. And, you know, just dig deep and, and say what you got to say. And don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not allowed to speak. And well, so- and that, that's so important, right? I mean, that's, and, and wouldn't some of that have come out of your fast and your, you know, your demonstration at the legislature with all those people? I mean, I remember seeing so many of those people like it was hundreds and hundreds and I thought this has got to be thousands at the end mm-hmm. no it was is quite something and one of the things that we've we've consistently done along the way was ceremony mm-hmm. and, and you know the involvement of of elders and the involvement of grandparents and you know um and it got attention and and eventually we got more resources and so um, right now we have about 41 people in our office. Wow. And, you know, all of them have different functions because our, our families who came forward taught us what we needed to do and how we could best help in situations. And so we, we, I mean, in the, in the scheme of things, we have about, our funding is about 10% of the smallest agency in Manitoba and today in Manitoba we have um, just over 9,000 First Nations children in care and so when you think about they, they, they use the stat for Manitoba 11,000 kids in care 90% of them are Indigenous but we, we tallied it up and, and you know we have nine over 9,000 children in CFS care today. And, you know, to me, that's atrocious. Like 90% is, is ridiculous. And um, I, I don't believe that we have over 20,000 negligent parents that can't care for their children. And when you broaden that to their extended families and aunties and uncles, there's no good reason that we need to have that many children taken from our families. Exactly. And and I'm actually glad that you brought up the statistic because um, one of the things that I have found very effective in public education is knowing actually what the statistics are and statistics in a way that they can understand. So you just said two statistics. Um, one was that, you know, 90% of kids in care in Manitoba are Indigenous, but that could be 90% of 10 kids. That could be, you know, 90% of five kids. But to know that it's actually, you know, more than 9,000 children. I mean, that's the entire population and more of some of our communities. You could put, sev- you know, several of our First Nations together and that would be their entire population. Like that's, it doesn't even, you know, register as something that could be normal or believable. And so I'm wondering if you could actually share with everyone, because part of why I do this podcast is for public education. So for people who say are from the Maritimes or from BC or from a different area of of Turtle Island and don't realize just how serious this situation is, um, I'm wondering if you could share more of the statistics about, you know, First Nation kids in care specifically, but also, you know, what happens to them and what about the moms and what about the families and, you know, all of the impacts and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, a great point. We talk about 9,000. I think about that as like two entire school divisions or, you know, 
and and the newborn apprehension you think about manitoba manitoba population base is not highly populated in comparison to other our other provinces and i always use the example of alberta alberta has about four and a half million people in their province and on average they have about 150 newborn babies apprehended each year Manitoba has a quarter of the population at about 1.1 million. And we have, on average, around 400 newborn babies being apprehended. That's, so, like, that's crazy. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. And so that's like 30 to 40 newborn babies. So like a classroom of children that are taken at birth every single month. Um, and 9,000 children in care. And one of the things that we also have been measuring lately is um, from 2008 to to, 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 to present, we have approximately 700 children who have died in that time. Just since 2008? Yes. In our province only. That's incredible. When um, Senator Justice Murray Sinclair released in the TRC report, they estimated that approximately 6,000 children died in in the residential school era. And that averaged out to be about 65 children a year that were dying in the days of residential school. And we know that it's probably higher than that Mm -hmm. as well. But when you look at the rate of death in the Manitoba child welfare system, on average, it's approximately 70 children a year in our small province. And so that rate of death is higher than residential school. It's higher than the rate of death in MMIWG. And, you know, it's a crisis. Well, and isn't it, you know, it, it it's a crisis and it's been called a crisis for a long time. But, I mean, didn't the National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls also include child apprehensions as a form of genocide? It did. And, you know, originally when, um, when we, the inquiry wasn't even going to look at the connection to child welfare. The Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs challenged the inquiry and said, you have to include child welfare. And they originally had, when, when we filed that it needed to be included, we were shut down. And then they decided to do a panel in Winnipeg to include it. And I think that, you know, when you look at the connections, you know, a lot of the issue boils down to stolen children, whether it be residential school, 60 scoop, sanatoriums, or the current child welfare system. Well... Yeah. And well, and that was one of the things I wanted to, to talk to you about, because even once Canadians are aware of what the statistics are uh, they're, and they're, you know, they're just in 
insane. It's it's hard to believe that that could even be the case and that it be allowed to continue. But something else that I've heard you talk lots about are, you know, the impact to the life opportunities of these children. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, being in foster care means that they are at higher risk for certain outcomes. And I'm wondering if you could talk mm-hmm. about what some of those outcomes are. Well, and and that that's the whole reason why I wanted to be able to work in this area was because I was working in the justice system before then. And I had, uh, we had children that were coming home, that were, were coming into our office and mm-hmm. they were being charged criminally. Um, for a while there, I was writing Gladue reports um, for, for mostly men that were awaiting sentencing and, you know, a hundred percent of them were in the child welfare system. Wow. Um, and so you saw those correlations. You, in Manitoba, they've been doing street census and finding that, um, um, you know, I think, I think it was around over 70% of our homeless population were young people who had just aged out of the child welfare system. And so it's, it's setting up children for failure. Um, mothers that I've worked with over time, you know, they were children who aged out of the system. And, you know, one of the mothers that I worked with, um, she was committed to making sure that CFS did not touch her children as she aged out of the system. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from the time she was 12 years old till she was 18, in the child welfare system, she was given one dress, one pair of panties, one pair of pantyhose, a pair of shoes. She was given four items from 12 to 18. And, you know, you know, to make her ends meet and survive, she was exploited just to survive. And when you think about in Manitoba, um, the number of missing persons, we had a statistic of about 8,700 missing persons in Manitoba in 2016. Sorry, that was 9,700 missing persons in 2016-17. And 70% of them were girls in the child welfare system. Wow. And so, you know, those things are staggering. And yeah, the healthcare system and, you know, our children are truly commodified. You know, we have the highest rate of child poverty in our province, particularly for children on reserve. And, you know, and then we have these stats of over 9,000 children in the child welfare system. And there's not resources to help families up front, but there's resources to take them away. And so when you look at the funding model, like today, if you read the Manitoba Child Welfare Act, you could say, well, Hmm, this doesn't really accurately represent the, the crisis that we're faced with. But behind that Child Welfare Act is a funding model. And 90% of the resources of the $546 million in the child welfare system is focused on protection of children. And so 90% of that 546 is for essentially the apprehension of children. 
if you're a social worker and you go into a mom's home and you look in her fridge and her cupboards and she doesn't have, in their view, doesn't have enough food, they could say, well, this is a safety issue or this is a neglect, a form of neglect, and they can justify the apprehension of those children. Instead of giving the mom a $100 or $200 gift card, they Mm -hmm. don't have money to do that, but they have $1,800 a month to put them in a stranger's home and allow them to provide care for them. Imagine the the impact. Imagine the impact that would have if a mom who's struggling to provide food for her children or clothing was given the same amount that a stranger was. Absolutely. Even if you kind of had some sort of sliding sort of scale that, you know, up front you're going to support a mom for two years so she can, you know, care for her children, have a little bit of support if she wants to pursue training or education Mm -hmm. or any of those sorts of things. Why not come into a home with the lens of what can we do to help? And you could probably do things far more cost efficient cost efficiently and not create all these um, social issues and the grief and loss you know people you know if your children aren't being apprehended you can't appreciate what that would feel like but um, at the end of the day it's it's totally devastating our elders say that it's the most the most violent act you can commit to a woman is to steal her children and so when you think about the way that you look at things and the way that you help, like we're all helpers. And so the system prevents us from being able to do that help that we want to do for our children and families. And um, yeah. And I, I think one of the things that, you know, upsets me the most, you know, so it's, it's bad enough as it is to take our kids for what is ultimately racist criteria and for essentially punishing First Nations for being discriminated against already. Because as you've said many times, you know, we're chronically underfunded in just basic social programs compared to other Canadians. So because we're underfunded and live in poverty, then we'll have our kids taken away because of that original discrimination. And then we're discriminated against a second time and then it just keeps getting compounded but you know it doesn't go without notice i you know and you've said this in different media interviews about the industry around it so there's this there's the there's the devastation that happens to our people from this and the claims of oh you know we don't have enough money for it but isn't i'm th- i'm pretty sure i've heard you say a few times that this is like a billion dollar industry around our kids and when i say industry i'm talking about all of the people who make their living around child apprehensions including uh places like hotels or organizations that provide um you know the equipment or even some of the families who are engaged in regular foster care of multiple kids who will take their kids, those kids, those foster kids to the doctor to get them declared with, you know, certain medical issues so that they'll have it more, even more funding for those kids, something that would never have been offered to the moms. No, absolutely. There, there's the, it's a billion dollar or multi-billion dollar industry. If you think about all the years that this has been happening mm-hmm. and you think about, you know, 
the 546 million on child welfare in Manitoba, well, a portion of that funds a whole bunch of jobs within our provincial government. Um, we pay the, we have uh, numerous, over 20 agencies in the province. They all employ hundreds and hundreds of people. We're, those kids are paying for, you know, their operations. Uh, all those jobs are created. Mm-hmm. The healthcare system, like our emergencies, emergency rooms um, are, are filled with children in care. Earlier on in my role, um, a senior person at the children's hospital said, well, you know, it wouldn't, we wouldn't even have a children's hospital if it weren't for First Nations children from the north. Wow. And so we think about the hospital and then we think about the justice system. You know, we have the over-incarceration of our people and they're all gifted and talented First Nations people, but they're full up. And, you know, I think our women's um, jail is over capacity. And many of them have that direct link to the child welfare system, either because they grew up in care or their children have been apprehended and they wind up incarcerated. So, you know, it fuels thousands of jobs. And so there's not really a huge incentive in certain industries to say, you know what, this money is better suited to be given to First Nations and First Nations families and First Nations own organizations um, to actually care for families and keep families together and reunited. Well, I mean, there's been some movements Mm -hmm. in the last couple of years, but I mean, they're just a mere drop in the bucket for what needs to be done. Like, you need to flip the system and take that budget and create housing opportunities, create... Mm -hmm you know, address, you know, the, the huge rates of poverty that we have in this province and, you know, and, and, and back to the children, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, a lot of times, even as adults, we have relationship breakdowns and, you know, I've known of people who, you know, a a relationship breakdown affects their lives forever. And Mm -hmm. some people have, will have breakdowns and have trouble coping and, you know, and then you think about these little kids, you're taking a two-year-old, a four-year-old, a five-year-old from away from everything they knew, they know, they lose their parents, they lose their homes, they lose their pets, they lose their schools, they lose their friends, they lose their cousins, they lose all these things when they're ripped away from their family. And they're tiny, they don't they don't have the emotional capacity to effectively um, recover from that. And who could recover from that? Mm-hmm. If you are an adult, if you lose everything. Well, and and, yeah. you put them into this system, you put them into a stranger's home. You don't have someone there that's going to, you know, kiss your boo-boos or take care of you when you're sick or kiss you goodnight or be able to crawl into your parents' bed at night if you're scared. Like you're, Depriving these children of all of this love and attention. You're putting them in this system. They don't know how to process all of it. And then what happens is the only way they know how to act out is through their behavior. And so then that's where the commodification comes in. You have a child that is 
relatively well-rounded. They go into the system, they struggle with it, and then they act out in their behavior, and then they get leveled up. And so instead of becoming worth $75 a day, then you're worth $100 a day. And who, you know, there's people in the system that are doing it solely for the money, so they're going to paint these children to be, you know, Mm -hmm. problematic. And Mm -hmm. then they get more money. And then... So in our province, they they max out at about four hundred dollars a day, and how they can justify getting more money per day for that child is to put them on medication. So if that child is on one medication, then they're going to be worth a little bit more. If you put them on two medications, then they're going to be worth more. And you know, I don't know of too many kids that aren't diagnosed with ADHD at a minimum. And then, you know, I've heard of children being worth up to $1,100 a day. Incredible. And when you think of the high rates of poverty and how difficult it is for many of our families, some of them headed by single moms, to to care for their kids and being blamed for the lack of funding, yet uh, you know, a stranger, a total stranger would get that much money for our children. And and that's not to say our children don't deserve it. Our children deserve all of that and more um, for what they for what they go through. I mean, there's no amount of money that can compensate for what happens has happened to them or or what does happen to them in foster care. But so it just, it goes to show, you know, when you say, when you respond, you know, I've heard you respond at in committee meetings um, in Parliament and Senate that, you know, don't tell us that there's no money because you, you make it available to anyone but First Nations, essentially. And I know that's a bit of an exaggeration, but when you look at it, it's that staggering. Well, no, but the part of it, too, is that children shouldn't be worth $1,100 a day. Like, they shouldn't have to suffer. They shouldn't Mm -hmm. have to, uh, you know, have lasting emotional damage Mm -hmm. in order to get their basic needs and to be able to stay with their mom and dad. There should be that investment. You know, um, when when we started in 2015, um, a couple years in, Canada was, celebrating its 150th birthday and you know our first nations people across the country were doing resistance 150 resilience 150 Mm -hmm. and you know i felt conflicted i i didn't i didn't know how we were going to acknowledge that day and so what we ended up doing is um on june 30th the night the day before, because we are here far longer than 150 years, mm-hmm. um, we had ceremony and we invited our community to come together and our grandmothers and elders. And we had ceremony making a commitment that after 150 years, we were going to bring our children home. That's incredible. I mean, and, and it's it's the way of our people, though. Like, I, I notice there's a theme here. Like, you, you're always going back 
to the ways of our people in ceremony, making sure it starts in ceremony, there's names in ceremony, where you get your guidance, how you interact with the families. Ceremony seems to be um, a, a pretty big part of this. And, and you know, you, you have done, I know you and your team have worked hard, you've done an incredible job, not just making this very visible and and you know, in the media and in public education in Manitoba, but but nationally, I mean, Manitoba is seen for all of the ways in which these statistics seem to kind of make Manitoba like ground zero. I mean, and there's got to be some correlation between the fact that Manitoba has some of the highest rates of foster care and that seems to translate to some of the highest, you know, over-incarceration rates that you were mentioning, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls, some of the highest uh, human trafficking and exploitation rates, highest poverty. I mean, it's it's all tied together. And, you know, the fact that even in your previous job that you came to know about that because you were working about people who were being um, brought into conflict with the law because of, you know, a whole bunch of reasons and that they had too had been in, in foster care. And we know now that in prisons, if you look at the numbers of people in prisons, you've got more than two thirds that are there, you know, who were involved in some way in the foster care system. And, you know, when I think about that, I think about it as almost like a scarlet letter. You know, isn't the idea of a child apprehension to take them away from such a horrible scenario and put them where they will be safe and loved and and you know there's all those like um ideologies you know so that's the myth that's created around foster care but it ends up being like this big chain around their neck where they're more likely to suffer a worse fate than had they just been supported properly in their families and and i just i don't know that that stereotype has been effectively overcome because we're still in this crisis. We're still in this ongoing genocide. And I'm wondering, what do you see as the main barriers to ending this crisis, like this year, to just end all of this, you know, over uh, representation? Mm -hmm. Well, I think, um, and, and you're totally right. Like when I, I worked in the area of justice and you look at how many of our people have been institutionalized from birth to death mm -hmm. that all of these systems you know you're just shuffled from system to system like I, I think about you know the social assistance and it predetermines the quality of life and and that's poverty and you know I used to when I worked in in the area of restorative justice I used to always be mindful of this quote from Anatoly France the law and its majestic equality equally forbids both rich and poor the ability to sleep under bridges, beg in the streets, and steal bread. And I think about, you know, just the, the marginalization of, mm -hmm. um, and, and just how things have been set up from birth to death for, for a lot of our people to, to fall into these systems that are ne have never been built for us. They've been built against us or to mm -hmm. trap us in some way. And, you know, I think, um, you know, it's, it's been four years and I feel like, I feel angry 
I feel mm-hmm. angry. I know that we've done a lot of work. We've we've helped reunify over 1,500 families, but you know, you have to do those big picture things because we work hard all day long, every day. But you know, when there's still more kids coming into care and there's 9,000 children, you know, you need to do those bigger picture things. And to me, that is asserting jurisdiction and that our First Nations have to revive our laws on how we cared for each other and put them into motion. And, you know, when child welfare comes knocking on the door, the province comes knocking on the door, they're like, see you later. Mm -hmm. Um, We have our own ways of dealing with things. And, you know, revive those, the, the grandmothers and empower them to, to have voices in our First Nations on how, you know, the care of children is going to, to happen. Um, we also need those preventative supports. We need to address, you know, the 150 plus years of stolen children. And, you know, we have to have adequate resources and supports that encourage healing and, and dealing with trauma in real and meaningful ways. Um, you know, I always think back to you know, Tina Fontaine, and she's from my, the same First Nation as me. And, you know, there has to be more mm-hmm. offered. When you think about the levels and layers of trauma and tragedy within our communities, you know, we need to have mechanisms and supports to be able to address that effectively. And if I think that about if there could have been more offered to um, to the family and to the First Nation to be able to address some of those things, that would have gone a long way in changing outcomes for, you know, all the children. Mm-hmm. It, and, well, ex- yeah, exactly. I mean, all and none of those things seem beyond the realm of possibility to me. They all seem to make logical sense. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and, and some of that stuff isn't going to be very costly either. And when I think about what our little office was able to do with one salary, mm-hmm. I think that, you know, we just have to help each other. And I know one grandmother had said to me, if, as individuals, as First Nations people, we have to look within our family. And if we have children in the system, pull them out. Mm-hmm. And I know we have water crisis and housing crises in our First Nations communities, but, you know, we have those original ways of caring for each other. I, I remember elders from my communities talking about, you know, the systems of support that were that they had built. And there was a house in our community that was known to be a safe place for women. We had certain families that step forward so if a family was in crisis and the children need care then those were go-to places like we we have to start reviving those support systems our leadership have to work towards asserting that jurisdiction Mm -hmm. um not not through the eyes of government or with the consent of government to just you know start building those laws working with the elders who have those the knowledge of how things were and how, you know, because those memories are there, mm-hmm. we need to capture them. And in our office right now, we have 
a team that is working within First Nation communities and meeting with all the eldest people in the community and um, capturing those laws so that they can create a template for communities to, to just put in motion. And I know that some of our First Nations across the country, like we have to share those best practices and and take matters into our own hands because, mm-hmm. you know, we'll be waiting forever in a day for Canada or Mount, our prov- provincial governments to do it. And it's not mm-hmm. theirs to, to do for us. Yeah, well, and that's one of the things that I really... Um, you know, take as value from the way that you advocate and and educate about this issue is, you know, you you hold the governments to account, you know, federal, provincial, you say, you know, here's what you've done wrong. Here's what you should be doing, you know, addressing the root causes of poverty that they created, um, you know, with housing and health and preventative family stuff. But, you know, you've also talked about, these resources to deal with the healing and trauma that they caused. But at the same time, you also focus on what First Nation leaders and our First Nations can do, you know, about asserting and defending our jurisdiction and laws, you know, literally stopping the province and social workers from taking our kids, empowering our grandmothers, working on our own laws, best practices. And, And I think, you know, we could we could learn a lot from how you do this balanced approach because you know if we had if we had progress on both of these areas you know holding the government to account but also doing the do you know ousting them essentially saying you know get out of our families that that's that that's a it's a really balanced approach going forward and and i'm wondering you know there's there's a federal election coming up. I know there's one in Manitoba. You're going to be, you know, some people will be voting um, fairly shortly. But in terms of the federal election, it's, if you had, you know, like three main things that you wanted a government to do, like whatever part, you know, it's not so much the party, but what do you think should be their priority? Like upon being elected, whoever gets elected, what are the most important things that they need to do in a very urgent way to reduce the number of kids in care? Well, I think one is to flip that funding model and Mm -hmm. take the investment they have in the protection of children and and focus it into preventative. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there needs to be an address to housing. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, we have 9,000 children that are in the child welfare system First Nations children, you know, all those children need their own homes mm-hmm. and they need the ability to go home. So we need to, you know, address that, that mm-hmm. housing piece. And there mm-hmm. has to be this respect for our First Nations and their ability to, to, to create their own laws and implement their own laws and, and chart their own futures. Yeah. We, we I mean, that's a really tall order. And at the end of the day, like, we also have our own First Nations free will. And, you know, my mm-hmm. grandma always says to me, don't let the grass grow under your feet. So you just do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Ultimately. And, and I know that when you say that, you've already said that that's with the understanding of all of the other things that First Nations are dealing with. But mm-hmm. ultimately, our kids will lose their childhoods if 
you know, if we don't do more asserting and, and more, you know, telling the government to back off. And and I don't know if you've ever thought about this question, because, you know, you, you've been very engaged in the media and helping to do public education. But is there anything that you think that Canadians can do to help, you know, either with advocacy or awareness or um, on this issue? Well, and I think... It, it's incumbent for, for Canadians to be aware. You know, we had the Truth mm. and Reconciliation um, report, and Canadians read it, or, or, or mm-hmm. some Canadians read it, and they were astounded, and they thought, well, how could this ever happen? And, you know, be aware. Like, try to appreciate the reality of others. You know, at the end of the day... I always feel like our stats are atrocious stats on child welfare um, just become white noise. And it's because the reality for our families is so far removed from the average Canadian, but it's real. Mm -hmm. And children are children no matter, no matter what. And I always come from the frame that life is life, that my life is no great, greater than a, uh, an ant walking on the sidewalk or a tree in the forest. Mm-hmm. We all have life. And, um, you know, people have these crazy ideas that, oh, well, those kids deserve to be taken. And, you know, stop that because mm-hmm. it's not real. It's our families are tar- targeted. They're disproportionately um looked at by the child welfare system you know every once in a while we'll have a non-indigenous family in the media saying well someone called child welfare because i let my kids walk down the street by themselves and you know everyone's outraged by that um but when you learn about the real reasons why some of our children are apprehended it's scary you know when i first started this role i i was I was shocked and astounded at how easy some of these children um, were apprehended and for what reasons. You know, um, uh, one of (laughs) my early moms, they came to her house um, while she was at work and they went into her cupboard and all she had was cookies because she wasn't getting paid to the following day. Uh, You know, some of them... It's perception, but, you know, and I I grew up in Winnipeg my whole life. I've I've seen how, you know, families operate. No family is perfect. Everyone has challenges, but somehow Mm -hmm. their challenge, you know, you can have a First Nations woman and a non-Indigenous woman having the same challenge, but the the non-Indigenous woman is not going to have CFS knocking on her door. Or you could go to the women's hospital in Winnipeg any day of the week and see all kinds of other people leaving the hospital happy with their babies. Mm. And it's not, you know, our First Nations women can't freely walk out of the hospital with their babies. It's There's- incredible. I mean, I've, I've heard someone, a social worker once tell me that if it was possible to put a video, you know, recording of everyone's internal family dynamics, mm-hmm. that you could, that every single family 
has multiple points in time when if you only looked at them at that particular moment, someone might say, hey, where's your child? Do you know where that child is? There's no one supervising them and playing in the backyard. We should take it. And if they applied a First Nation lens to it, it would be automatic apprehensions all the time. But this, you know, families are dynamic and they're organic and we make mistakes and we learn from them and no one's perfect. But there's a different there's a different standard applied to us and and we pay the price we pay the yeah. price yeah i mean even you could watch tv you could watch reality tv and you have teen moms and you have tiny houses and you have all of these things mm-hmm. that are acceptable but if you have a mom living with three kids in a one bedroom apartment well that's mm-hmm. not suitable yeah you know, I am so glad you raised that because honestly, it's just something as small as that. You've got entire families moving into these tiny small houses where kids will be stacked up, but that would never, ever be allowed for us. I mean, I've known people who've lost kids because, you know, the mom and the kids all sleep in the same bed. I mean, and, and that's something that traditionally, like, uh, my kids slept in my bed too, but there's different, there's... Yeah, there's like a racist lens that's put Mm -hmm. to it. So I'm wondering, like, everything that we've talked about here and, you know, all of the all of the difficulties, we know that our, you know, our babies, our children, our youth, some of them are going to struggle because of the conditions of poverty in their First Nation. And and many of them live off reserve and and struggle with poverty, too, because, you know, as you know, we have large urban uh, populations. They're they're going to face racism in society and especially those kids that are in foster care. And I know you've met so many of them. And I'm wondering, you know, I have some youth that listen to my podcast and YouTubes and things like that, knowing that they're going to face all of these struggles do you have any advice for them on how they can you know focus on their dreams despite all of these difficulties Mm -hmm. well I think it's important you know there's so many people in our community that are loving and generous Mm -hmm. and one of the things that I think is so important is that and I call it a circle of knowing and in every role that I've ever had in any organization, I always want to create that organization to be one positive circle and someone's circle of knowing. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I have my parents, I have friends, I have um, professional people. And so if I'm faced with something that I'm struggling with, if I need $20 for some milk for my kids, I can go to, you know, a few different people to do that. If I need someone to watch my children for two hours, then in my circle, I have someone to do that. If I'm confronted with a legal issue, I have someone in my circle. And one of the things that I've always tried to do is to always create one positive circle for any person who walks through our door. And, and then when you have that one positive circle, then you start building more. And I think for our young people, You know, one of the key things is to find that one positive circle and just keep building. And at the end of the day, um, our people have overcome so many things. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I see how hard so many of our moms work. And 
it, it's it's really unfair that they have to work like 20 times harder than the average Canadian to make it, you know, in life. But, you know, there's so many examples of, of resiliency. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's important for us to continue sharing, you know, how amazing our people have have overcome trauma and tragedy and, you know, and, and for all of those people, like we try to harness that in our office and in my former role in restorative justice, those are the people I wanted to hire is those people who found that way out of, you know, addiction or overcoming mm-hmm. physical or sexual abuse and charting that course. And I think that we need to, you know, and through your, your show, it's about warriors and telling the stories of, of what our people have done to, mm-hmm. you know, overcome odds and bring their children home. And, you know, that's, that's what we really need to celebrate because those people are excellent examples and role models. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's, we have to do a lot of that, you know. When I was well, thinking about this conversation we were going to have today, I, I, for whatever reason, thought about this elder that uh, I met when I was in university, and he was my friend. And in the day when residential school was, when they were talking about these settlements for residential school survivors, I remember him saying to me, uh, he's like, I don't want any money. He said, they can keep my money as long as it ensures that this never happens again. Mm. I was young then, and I was, you know, really naive, and I'm like, well, how could something like this ever happen ever again? Like, and, you know, we talk about the average Canadian. Um, Like, it's happening, Mm -hmm. and it's happening. The only thing is, is that, you know, they've changed the game a bit. Back in the day, we could, in our First Nations, we would see these big white buildings, and we knew that's where the children are. And nowadays, we don't know where the children are, and Mm -hmm. we don't have access to them. And uh, one of the things, in the last couple of months, you have these young people that are coming forward, and they're talking about their experiences and we have to create those spaces for them to be able to come forward. Because just in the last month, we've had two groups of kids all within two separate families come forward and talking about what's happening to them in their foster care home. And things that are happening, have happened to them for eight years. And no one's looking in on them. And I think we need to make it available. We need to... Um, create safe places for these young people to come forward so that we can rescue them out of these places. And, and there's an urgency on that. Mm-hmm. You know? We had this one family, like the girl that came forward, she was so brave and she came forward and she shared her story because she wanted something to be done for her younger siblings in that same home. And, you know, you're hearing things about them having as punishment to kneel on plates of rice while holding books and they're only like five and six years old and mm-hmm. alarms on cupboards and locks on the fridge and you know one little girl came home with uh blisters on her hand from the monkey bars at school and being made to hang from her bunk bed and stuffing her mouth with kleenex so she didn't 
her crying wouldn't annoy the foster parents. Like, wow. a 15-year-old girl, you know, the foster dad's allowed to walk into the bathroom while she's showering and, you know, all of these things. And these things are real and they're happening today. And we need to be able to have access to our children and we need to have places that are safe for them to go to. So mm -hmm. I know this is a national podcast and those are some of the things that I, I want to see built for our, our kids. Well, I, I appreciate that, Cora, because, you know, the, the last little story that you just shared really just shows, you know, residential schools and the, and the abuse that suffered in them hasn't really stopped. It's just taken a different form. And like you were saying, you know, you, all the kids used to be in one place and now they're spread out and we, we can't even keep track of what's happening with our kids. And what I, what I really take heart from what you said, um, you know, about advice for young people is how you make sure that when people enter your doors, that they are, that you help create a positive circle of, you know, love and support and, and, you know, you're connecting your own strong, resilient warriors who are loving and caring that work there with the people that come through those doors and then helping them find that other circle. And I think that's, that's not just, you know, good for the youth that are actually in foster care, but also for these families who must feel very lonely and isolated. And, you know, I, as you know, First Nations, our strength has always been in our collective. It's only when we try, you know, when government tries to turn us into individuals and isolate us, you know, from our collective that um, that things go wrong. And and I know, I mean, I, I can't even imagine because I'm not a social worker either, but I just know that this must be very heavy work for you and your team. And and because this is a show, uh, you know, about the warrior life, and I very much consider you a warrior, you're doing this job for our people. How do, you, how do you stay balanced? Like, how do you engage in this very traumatizing work and helping, you know, kids every day and families? Um, how do you stay balanced through all of this? Well, <laughs> that's... Uh... That, that's one of the things that I've, I've kind of been struggling with lately is that I, I really haven't mm -hmm. created a, a, a good enough balance. Um, but what's helpful is that uh, we have a really great team of people. Um, our First Nations leadership that got our office, um, you know, take some of the burden of of the work away and, and, you know, they work at some of those big picture things and mm -hmm. just, you know, I pray a lot and, you know, I pray mm -hmm. every single day that, you know, our children who are sick, you know, sick and suffering, um, and in the child welfare system that, you know, they feel love and that, you know, we're empowered to do good things to support them and that they have good futures ahead of them. And so, you know, I have a lot of trust in Creator, and um, I believe in our path because all along this way, you know, when we're struggling, we have uh, something put on our path that's an opportunity to keep moving forward. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a great answer, but... <laughs> it's the real answer, and that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's what this is about, right? <laughs> mm. 
-hmm. (laughs) This stuff isn't easy. And, you know, that's the other side of the question. You know, not everyone knows, especially Canadians, what goes into this. And, you know, I, I really can't thank you enough for sharing all of your knowledge and insights and experiences, Cora, because, you know, people really need to know how all of this stuff works and, you know, the kind of ways in which it's 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 difficult for us to address all of these all of these issues because you know I can talk to you about First Nation kids in care and then I can talk to someone else about you know the lack of access to clean drinking water and someone else you know about health and someone else about homelessness and so all of these things work in tandem and and you know I really want to acknowledge you for your continuous advocacy and your support of of First Nations kids and families because when you're supporting kids and families you're actually supporting you know our First Nations to you know heal and and revitalize and decolonize and resurge and rebuild and and all of that stuff for the future and to me it's reassuring to know that despite the fact that all of this continues and that the crisis grows in many areas and the Canada continues to break up our families that there are people like you and the team that you've assembled there to help us bring our kids home because ultimately I think that's just the message that our kids want to hear that there is someone there who is working to finally bring them home and you know I I lift my hands up to you Cora for your work that's very kind and generous. Um, and, you know, one of the things when I left university, one of my, my very first employer out of university said, well, you know, you're lucky to have an education. You're lucky to have a voice. You're lucky to have a job. But it's your responsibility to make sure that you, you, you do what you can for, for all of our other people who, who didn't have the same opportunity. And I've always kind of took that to heart and taken it as a responsibility. And I know so many of our people that are doing the exact same thing. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the work that you do is so amazing and you're shedding light on all of these stories that need to be told. And we don't have enough mechanisms that share the success and and the gifts Mm -hmm. and talents of our people. So I I really appreciate this opportunity uh, to speak with you today. Well, thanks, Cora. I I hope I can have you back because I really consider you and your team one of those gifts. And I really want to share that with people and, you know, not just our people, but Canadians so that they can, you know, put their education and self-awareness into action and what they can do to kind of, you know, support us. And so I hope I can get you back on the show again to talk about more specific issues. And sorry. Anytime. Okay, great. I'm going to hold you to that. So uh, I also want to thank all of the listeners who tune into my show. I really hope you listen carefully and learn lots from Cora Morgan. And what I'll do is I'll post a link to her website in my description box so that you can learn more about the First Nations Family Advocate Office and her team. And they also have a Facebook page. So I'll post a link to that as well. 
And if you like this episode, please consider supporting my podcast by subscribing, liking, and sharing each episode. You know, talk about it with your with your students, with your colleagues, with professionals, whatever it takes to get the message out there and inspire people to action. And make sure to leave your um, you know, questions and comments in the comments section because this is a really great opportunity to share information and links to key reports and things like that. I'm currently hosted on SoundCloud, but also available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Pam underscore Palmeter, where we talk about warrior living and where we celebrate our warrior heroes. And you can subscribe to my videos on YouTube where I tackle difficult political and legal issues facing First Nations. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. We'll all live.